And while you're standing this morning, I'd invite you to take, uh, if you've received one, a copy of our church covenant. Uh, it should have been in the bulletin that you're given this morning, and we might be able to pull it up here on the screen as well. I hope we can. But this morning we'll be taking part in the Lord's Supper and uh, at, near the end of the service. And as we do so, I'd mentioned recently that I'd like to start calling attention more to our church covenant, uh, reminding us that, especially when we take part in the Lord's Supper, that for those of us that are members of this church, that we have committed ourselves uh, in covenant to one another, in agreement to one another, to, to walk together in Christian love according to our convictions of Scripture. And this covenant... It's not anything inspired by God, but it's based on God's inspired word, what we believe the Bible expects of us as believers and how we intend to live, live out these expectations and biblical expectations together. So if you have a copy of this, you can see the words. Uh, I'd invite you to read this with me this morning. And if you're not a member of our church, let this be a reminder to you. We'd love to have you as a member. and love to talk with you about that. But let's read this together. Having been led, as we believe, by the Spirit of God, to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, and on the profession of our faith, having been baptized by immersion in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we do now, in the presence of God and this assembly, most solemnly and joyfully enter into covenant with one another as one body in Christ. We engage, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit to walk together in Christian love, to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge, holiness, and comfort, to promote its prosperity and spirituality, to sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines, to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, and the relief of the poor, and to the spreading of the gospel through all nations. We also engage to maintain family and private devotions, to religiously educate our children, to seek the salvation of our kindred and acquaintances, to walk circumspectly in the world, to be just in our dealings, faithful in our engagements, and exemplary in our conduct, and to be zealous in our efforts to advance the kingdom of our Savior. We further engage to watch over one another in brotherly love, to remember one another in prayer, to aid one another in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy and feeling and Christian courtesy in speech, to be slow to take offense, but always ready for reconciliation and mindful of the rules of our Savior to secure it without delay. We moreover engage that when we remove from this place, we will, as soon as possible, unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's Word. Thank you for doing that with us this morning. Remind you as we take part in the Lord's Supper before our ushers come this morning for the offering. As we take part in the Lord's Supper, uh, we invite you, if you're a baptized believer, to take part in the Lord's Supper with us. You don't have to be a member of this church, but you do have to be somebody that's professed faith in Jesus and been baptized as a believer, baptized by immersion as a believer, and are, and are in a walk in a right stance with the Lord. And even then, this is also an opportunity for us to examine ourselves 
not only to see whether or not we're in the faith, but is there any blatant sin in our life that's that's leading us to uh, cause a rift in the church or, or is affecting the, the, the church in a, wrong, in a wrong way? And so if there's blatant, unconfessed sin in your life, then this should be a check in your spirit, a means of grace for you to go to the Lord and confess that and possibly go to an individual and confess that sin to that person as well and, and seek to reconcile. So let's keep those things in mind. I'm going to ask right now that, that our ushers will come for this morning's offering and y'all can be seated right now. Our children are going to be remaining in the service this morning uh, to be with us as we have the Lord's Supper following the message. Kellen, for that this morning. That was a wonderful job, young man. You're doing good. As you're taking your Bible this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn to the first book of the Bible in Genesis. Genesis uh, chapter 2 and 3 is where we'll be at this morning. And if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, you can find one underneath the chair you're sitting in or close to you. And as you're turning there, and before you before you stand, I, I just wanted to share a couple of reasons why I'm in this passage of Scripture. I don't always do that, but I thought I would this morning for just a moment. We've been in the Sermon on the Mount for quite some time in Matthew chapter 5 and working our way through that. And, and I plan to pick up back in there uh, next Sunday as the Lord leads. But one of the reasons I'm, I'm looking at this passage of Scripture this morning, I mentioned earlier that in the back uh, of, the, of our sanctuary is a display about Bosnia. And soon we'll be going to Bosnia, five of us, and along with myself. And when we go, we would, of course, covet your prayer. And I didn't covet your prayers, especially this year. I've been asked this year when I go, when we go to Bosnia to fill a, to fill a role that I've not f- filled there before. Jason Hembacher, the pastor of the church at Afton, usually goes with us. 
and he's kind of like the MC for the school, and and they don't call him the evangelist because they can't call him the evangelist because of the nature of what we're doing, but uh, that's what he is. And so gradually he speaks through the week and he works up to more explicitly sharing the gospel during their assembly times. And Jason can't go this year, so I've been asked to fill that role. And Jason had lived in Bosnia and speaks spoke some Bosnian. Uh, I speak no Bosnian. And in fact, they corrected me in my English when I was there, some of the Bosnians themselves, as some of you have as well. So um, I would appreciate your prayers. I'm a little little anxious about that. Uh, but one of the reasons I call attention to that is I've, I've thought about a theme for the week of that school and uh, just talking with some folks that work over there and Jason himself. Uh, one of the um, the ways that people in that part of the world, and especially in the east and somewhat in Bosnia, uh, you find a lot among Muslims, but not just Muslims, and um, that their worldview is they think more in terms, we think of, of uh, how we're guilty and how we want to be innocent and we're guilty, and we tend to, they, th- they tend to think in more terms of honor and shame in their worldview. And so I'm thinking about and praying about how to work through that uh, maybe during that week in, in, in the way I present the gospel. And so when this passage of Scripture has a lot to do with the shame that Adam and Eve felt, and so in working through it, it's preparing me for that week. And hopefully it's a reminder to you to be praying for our team as we go, hopefully to meet some of the same students we've, we've met before and some new ones, and hopefully be able to share the gospel explicitly with them during that week. In a culture like that, um, sometimes... Their concept of right and wrong is a little different. It's not that they don't think there's right and wrong, but they're more concerned about bringing dishonor to a family. They're more communal in nature. And so uh, if you were to go out and steal something and get away with it and bring it to your family, they might say, well, good for you. You didn't get caught. But if you stole something and got caught, that would bring shame on the family. All right? And so to bring shame upon your family is a very weighty thing. So you hear about honor killings and things like that in that part of the world, not in Bosnia, but, but among that part of the world, you know, in the Middle East and so forth more, of, more often. And so uh, for nobody to be around to say shame on you is, is really a good thing. So those, those are the type of things to keep in mind in that kind of that part of the world. And, but, but we deal with a lot of that with uh, a lot of the people we come into contact here in our community too. A lot of people wrestle with not wanting to bring shame upon themselves or feeling guilty and so forth about things they've done in their life. A second reason I'm looking at this passage of Scripture this morning is anticipating next Sunday where we're at in the Sermon on the Mount is the topic of divorce. And in this passage of Scripture, in Genesis chapter one, chapter two, magnifies the foundation of of marriage. It magnifies marriage itself. In the past two Sundays, uh, in preaching, I've I've mentioned verse twenty four in the sermons, and I've mentioned how verse twenty four is the "do not enter" sign in relation to uh, sex outside of marriage, in relation to having just one wife and marriage between men, between one man and one woman. This is the "do not." enter sign. This is what Jesus says. Marriage is between, this is what God says, marriage is between one man and one woman, and it's to be permanent. And so I anticipate um, in preaching a sermon about divorce next Sunday from where we're at in the Word of God, that's not a sermon I look forward to preaching, and probably one that we may not look forward to hearing. Uh, yet at the same time, it's, it's the Word of God, and we must hear what the Word of God Says And so it's my hope and prayer that uh, we will also be somewhat better prepared for that sermon next Sunday after hearing maybe this sermon. So with that long 
preface, would you please stand with me as we honor God in reading His Word together. I'm going to read just these two verses for now, verse 24 and 25 of chapter 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother, his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray together. Our Father, I thank You for Your Word. I praise You, God, that You've given us Your Word, that we can know You, and Father, that we can know what Your ideals are, Father, for our lives before You and before one another. God, I pray that You would teach us about our nature. God, teach us about who You are. Father, I pray that we would see Your grace that's been given to us and fully and finally in Jesus Christ. God, may you magnify yourself this morning. May we see the, the weightiness and glory and beauty of, of marriage. Father, may we see that you desire to erase the guilt and shame and fear that we have because of our sin. But only you can take that away. So I pray that sinners... And there's none that are not here this morning that are, there's no non-sinners here. I pray that we would look to you alone to clothe us in righteousness through Jesus. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So we're familiar with concepts of honor. It was last Last time we had our flag display outside, maybe, I don't remember. It might have been Veterans Day. I'd walked over, some of you might remember, to this flag over here, our American flag. And I was trying to demonstrate something. I ended up knocking over the flag and uh, dishonoring the flag in front of everyone during that sermon that morning. It's something we, we don't want to do. And we think of Memorial Day, we think of soldiers who have sought to honor their country and fight for their country and, and certainly not want to bring shame upon their nation. So we're, we are certainly familiar with these concepts. And we are also familiar with the concept not only of honor but of shame. To be human is to know and experience shame to some degree especially as you get older. Now, we may try to suppress shame, or you might call it guilt, that we, that we feel about things we've done in our life. Some people appear to be shameless in how they live, and that's certainly true, but there's a suppression of it, a covering up, an ignoring down deep inside because of being created in the image of God. They can't ignore the fact that they have shame and guilt and, every, and everything, all the smiles and all the lifestyle is just a cover-up for the guilt and shame that is buried beneath the facade of materialism and idolatry that they seek to, uh, to say brings them pleasure. So to know, to be human is to know and experience shame to some degree, but this is not the way things have always been. So let me share this first of all in the outline I've got for you this morning. Number one, we can only imagine a place of honor with no shame. I think in your bulletin I outline I might have put a shameless place of honor, and I thought that was confusing, so I'm rewording this to say we can only imagine a place of honor with no shame. We can only imagine such a place. Adam and Eve enjoyed a place of honor. 
It was a place of honor because they were not only creating the image of God, but they were ruling co-regents with God, ruling over creation. We are not animals. We are created to rule over creation and to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. Adam and Eve, it tells us in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, were given this place of honor with God being created in His image. Not only it being created in His image, but we're in covenant with God and in covenant with one another. And so when you look at verse 24 again, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So this foundation here, in, in thinking about future generations that would come, they were, we are being told that Adam, whose wife Eve was brought to him, he was to hold fast to her. They would be one flesh. There would be this commitment. There would be this bond, this uniting of them together, this covenant with them before God. He would have left a man in the future that would have earthly parents. Adam didn't. Would leave their parents and they would cleave to their bride and they would have this unbreakable, permanent bond of joy and perfection. And this was a place of honor, and it was a place of honor with no shame. Can you? We, we can't imagine a place of honor with no shame. And we think of the next verse and how they were not ashamed of their nakedness. I remember being at a Kansas City Royals baseball game, and a streaker came streaking across the baseball field, and everyone stood and clapped, and I covered the eyes of my kids as this guy ran. As R.C. Sproul explains, streakers have never been called strollers. They're streaking. They're running. Because normally, anyway, there is a... a uh, something about running around naked that causes one not to stroll. So we look in verse 25 and we see the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were strolling through the garden and thought nothing about it. So the question comes to mind, why are they not ashamed? John Piper is very helpful in his sermon about this, and I'd encourage you to look at it at some point. But why are they not ashamed of their nakedness? Is it because they have perfect bodies and they look at one another and she says, you look great, and he says, you look great? Well, they would have had perfect bodies, but is that really the main thrust of what's going on here? They were naked and not ashamed because they had perfect bodies? I would say, and I would agree with John Piper, they are naked and not ashamed because they have a perfect marriage. Because of verse 24. They are cleaving together perfectly. They are united perfectly. Alan Ross explains in his commentary on Genesis, they were at ease with one another without fear of exploitation for evil. I am imperfect they would have said to one another, but no, have no fear of being disproved by my spouse. Now, this is before the fall. They had no imperfections, but this covenant relationship that had been established of, of marriage at the beginning is designed to be the main foundation of marriage for freedom, uh, freedom from shame in the future. This was God's design for marriage, which is intended to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. When Jesus looks at His church, 
and the church thinks about how Jesus looks at the church, the church, we are assured that He looks at us, He looks upon us and chooses to see us without us having any shame, any guilt because of His love for us. That's the covenant He's made with us. We are free from shame because of our husband, Jesus Christ. And that's to be reflected in our marriages. And it was perfectly reflected that way in Adam and Eve's marriage before the fall. When they looked at each other and their, and their physical nakedness, their physical nakedness did not betray the reality of their perfect marriage. They truly were innocent before one another. My son, Josiah, has been bow hunting and going to the bow range and shooting with the kids. And I posted a picture a few weeks ago how he uh, Robin Hooded his arrow. And that means he shot an arrow and shot another arrow right into the back of the other arrow perfectly. And we took a picture of it. We were so proud for him to do that. It was a great honor. And so I'm bragging on him. I'm honoring him this morning. A lot of us know what it's like to be honored for different things that we've done, whether small or, or big. We've been honored at certain times. But as we get older... In those experiences of being honored, perhaps we've graduated or whatever, or what, uh, those experiences of being honored are often tainted with reminders or perhaps thoughts that, well, they're saying this about me, but if they only knew the real me. Oh, you're just a great dad. Praise the Lord, thanks. If they only knew the real me. You see... Our experience of honor is tainted in the back of our minds with a sense of shame because we are not innocent. We live post-fall, after the fall of Adam and Eve. We've, we've inherited a sin nature. What happened? We've been exploited and exposed. And so when we look in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, we see the old serpent, the devil, coming in, tempting Adam and Eve and they become aware of their nakedness. The Bible says after they ate that the eyes of them both in verse 7 were opened. And so what do we read in Scripture about nakedness? Do you expect to come to church today and hear a sermon about nakedness? Well, we read about nakedness in Scripture. We read about Noah's nakedness, that Noah had become drunk in Genesis chapter 9. But what's emphasized is not his drunkenness, but his nakedness, that one of the sons continued to look at his father's nakedness and disgraced his father who was lying naked in his drunkenness. We see the priest in the Old Testament who are supposed to wear a special linen underwear so that when they perform their priestly duties that their nakedness is not seen. Nakedness after the fall of Adam and Eve is not looked upon favorably in the Bible. It never is. I was reading this week some interesting articles about this subject where supposed Christians wanted to justify public nudity in some instances. Ridiculous. After the fall, everything is turned up on its head. Martin Luther explains this passage points out admirably how much evil followed after the sin of Adam. For now it would be regarded as the utmost madness if anyone walked about naked. And so this statement here, naked, verse 25, and not ashamed. Isn't that just a strange phrase for us to hear? Naked and not ashamed. It's supposed to seem strange to us. 
because things have changed. We do not live in a place of innocence. We can only imagine a place of honor as Adam and Eve once enjoyed, a place of honor with no shame. We are a people, whether we want to admit it or not, suppressing it or not, we are a people who have shame and guilt in our lives because of our sin. That's what I want to relay to Bosnians in a culturally helpful way when we're in Bosnia. But I hope that you understand that too and admit it. But secondly, we cannot sufficiently cover our shame. So we think of little tiny kids running around naked. Why would little tiny kids run around naked? Well, we don't think much of that, that they're running around naked in their innocence. They're not lusting after one another. They're, they're just running around with no clothes on sometimes, right? It reflects their innocence. Why? What do you see Adam and Eve doing in verse 7? The eyes of them both were opened. Look at verse 7 of chapter 3. Then the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What's that mean? Well, before they ate of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, they had no knowledge. They, they, they were innocent. They did not realize that they were naked. They, didn't, they were innocent of it. They just didn't think anything of it. But now their eyes are opened. Now they have this knowledge. And, and so they take fig leaves and, and try to sew them th- those fig leaves together. They look pretty pitiful. Why are they now ashamed of their bodies? Are their bodies now ugly because of the fall? I don't think that's the case. They now know good and evil. They're no longer innocent. The security of the covenant that they had with one another is broken. The innocence of nakedness that they see in their bodies is a vivid contradiction. Their their naked bodies says we're innocent. But now they have guilt and shame because they've sinned against God and so their nakedness contradicts how they feel and who they are and what they should be. They should be innocent, but they're not. And their nakedness is a, is a, is a vivid illustration right in front of them of that. It's a reminder of their shame. So what do they want to do so they don't have to think about how shameful and guilty and sinful they are? What do they do? They take fig leaves and they sew them together and they try to cover it up. And they try to hide this shame. Just like some of us do. We try to suppress how we feel or some of the things we've done. Or we try to make up for it by the good works that we do. And, 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 and try to move past our past and all of this. And, and, and we really just can't do it. And in fact, not only are they trying to cover it up, they're trying to hide, aren't they? If you keep reading in the verses, who are they hiding from? They're hiding amongst the trees with fig leaves on them, trying to hide from God. And the fact of the matter is, is they cannot hide their nakedness. They can't conceal their nakedness appropriately or sufficiently. And they certainly cannot hide from God. They cannot do anything to make themselves feel better about themselves by covering themselves up. And they cannot do anything to appear before God without shame and guilt. They can't hide it from Him. And beloved, you can't hide your shame or guilt and your sin before God either. You can't can't sufficiently ignore 
the shame and guilt and sin you fear by, by trying to be good and all this. And you can't just think that God doesn't see it either. God still sees the nakedness. He still sees the sin and shame and guilt. And you still feel it even though you may try to cover it up. They couldn't and we cannot sufficiently cover our shame. We can't hide it from God. Number three, we're cursed by God and covered in shame. So we can't imagine a place of honor with no shame. We can't sufficiently cover our shame. And number three, we're cursed by God and covered in shame. Genesis chapter 3, look at your Bible in verse 11. You can look at your Bible. Notice what it says. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Who told you that you were naked? And so, what happens? Immediately the blame game follows. The question comes, who told you? Who told you you were naked? Did you eat? And so what, what's the response of Adam and Eve? Remember they had this perfect marriage of trust and, and, and no, no sense of vulnerability to one another. Trust, right? A perfect marriage. But what follows when God asks the question, what did you do? Who told you to do it? What do they do? They blame each other. They turn on each other. They can't look at each other the same anymore. The foundation of marriage has been broken in that sense. They have shame and guilt, not only because of how they feel toward God, trying to hide from God, but now they look at each other and that marriage is never going to be the same again. Can I really trust Eve to not, that I'll be free from shame in my relationship with her? You know, it's, it's wonderful to have a relationship, a marriage where you feel loved unconditionally. But there's not a perfect one like that. But Adam and Eve had had it. But now there's going to be this lingering thought. This one who has deceived me, or this one that did not lead me because Adam did not lead his wife. This one that did not lead me, can I trust him? This one who tempted me to eat, can I really trust her anymore? You see, things are not the same anymore. So the blame game follows. Not only that, but if you look in verses 14 through 19, the curse follows. And I'm not going to read all those verses this morning. Pain and childbirth and, and the ground will uh, have uh, be hard for Adam to, to, to plow and so forth and, and bring forth its fruit. and Just a cursed world. And so a couple of things about this. We're cursed by God and covered in shame. And in relation to marriage now, what's going to happen? Marriage is going to be Hard work. It was a perfect marriage. But marriage is a going to be a hard work, especially in a cursed world. Dave Harvey wrote a book called When Sinners Say I Do. And I think that's a wonderful telling title. When Sinners Say I Do. Because you got two people who are sinners, who feel sin and shame themselves, and they're trying to come together and relate to one another the way God would have them to in marriage as one flesh. 
as two people who trust one another and can tell each other anything and can confide in one another. And that's going to be hard work after the fall, right? It's going to be impossible work without the help of Almighty God. You're trying to work things out in your marriage, have a good marriage, you better be sure you're both working your way toward God. Yet you're seeking God together. It's never going to work. It's going to be hard enough as it is. Trust has been broken for Adam and Eve and things will never be the same. Adam will never again enjoy and Eve the complete openness and trust towards one another that they enjoyed in Eden. Their relationship is marred by the knowledge of evil in the other person. Mistrust and alienation, Alan Ross says, replaced the security and intimacy they enjoyed. So marriage is going to be hard work. So for those of you this morning, perhaps you're dating a young man or a young lady, and it's easy to fall in love, isn't it? And certainly it's a wonderful thing, to, a place to be at the same time. The reality of marriage sets in quickly after the honeymoon And when the honeymoon's over, that's when life gets real. And marriage is a wonderful thing. Amen, church? Sometimes we speak this way and we act as if, oh, oh." well, marriage is a wonderful thing. I'm so blessed and thankful for my marriage. But I'll tell you, it's hard work. And if this is the case about marriage itself, just think divorce is horrific and devastating. R.C. Sproul comments on the holy bond of marriage that a man and woman have enjoyed together. He said this about his wife before he passed. My wife knows what I'm willing to expose about myself, what I'm willing to expose. Because even in a marriage, husbands and wives don't always tell everything they're thinking, right? Because sometimes because there's that lack of trust or will they look at think about me differently if I share this dark thought that I had? So he says, my wife knows what I'm willing to expose. And and certainly in his marriage, he would have said, my wife knows more than anything anybody else knows about me. She she knows what I'm willing to expose, yet she knows me better than anyone else. And she loves me. So there's that marriage. It's a struggle. It's hard. You're working. You're, you're trying to be transparent as much as you can with one another and trust and, and know that you're going to be loved no matter what. And, you, and you've shared intimate details, not only in physically, but, but also emotionally and all those things. And divorce, when it comes, it, it, that bond is ripped apart. And, and this one that you have trusted in, that you have exposed yourself to physically and emotionally and in every way possible. Slowly the trust has been broken in that marriage and eroded to the point where one or both parties feel like it can't go on any longer. And both are left devastated. Both are just left horrifically devastated because of it. This is a person I trusted And they have turned their back on me. We live in a cursed world where we must work hard at our marriages. We're cursed by God and covered in shame. But there's hope. Fourthly and finally, we must be clothed by God 
to be restored to honor. Why? Why does God clothe Adam and Eve? Why does God put clothes on them? That's what it says. We were having our study at home last night with the kids, and Titus spoke up our youngest and said, God put skin on them. That's right. God put clothes on them, animal skins on them. Somebody here at church has been teaching them that. Why does God clothe Adam and Eve? Wearing clothes is a witness. It's telling something. Wearing clothes is confession that we're not what we should be. So God puts clothes on them not to just help them cover up their sin and shame because they were doing that and that was inadequate already. But God wants Adam and Eve to be clothed just like He wants you to wear clothes and not run around naked all the time now. It wasn't a sin to be naked then, but it is now. And we're supposed to wear clothes now as confession. When we wear clothes, what we're saying is we're not innocent. We're not what we should be. We're not Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before the fall. We live in a fallen world and I am a fallen person. That's what I say by wearing clothes all the time. And if I take my clothes off and I parade around publicly naked or immodest, then I'm shaking my fist in the eyes of God and I'm saying I'm not a rebel when in fact I am by how I dress or my lack of clothing at all. My clothing says... I've sinned against God. My clothing says I am not innocent. We are sinners. We are outside the garden. We are banished. But something else, another reason that God wants us to wear clothes is not only to remind us that we're not innocent and we just can't run around like kids who are innocent, run around naked as a jaybird. But wearing clothes is a confession that we are not yet what we will be. Amen? Let me explain. Look at your Bible in verse 21. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. What did God do? He made. And one commentator pointed out in Genesis chapter 1, we see God making all kinds of stuff, right? He says that it's good. And then he rests from his work. But now he's making something else. Not making something out of nothing, though. Presumably, God is, those animal skins are coming from animals who have been alive and God is killing them. God is, there's death because of man's sin. Now, God who made things and whenever He makes something, it's create something. Now He's making animal skins so that He may save something because sin has entered into the world. Marcus Dodd points out Adam took a bunch of leaves from a bush, an inanimate object, and tried to cover up himself. Death was to early man a sign of God's anger. Man had to learn that a bunch of leaves grabbed from a bush is not sufficient to cover his sin. The only way somebody's sin could be covered is by pain and by blood. And the chief point of this text is that God is the one who relieves man's shame. We must be clothed physically and spiritually. We must be clothed by God to be restored to honor. And that's what God is being foreshadowed here in this verse. But i got a couple of questions for you before I close then. Can we ever get back to the Garden of Eden the way things were? My answer would be no. If you look in verse 24, you'll see that the way to the Garden of Eden is barred. 
Nobody's allowed to go back there. You can't go back to the Garden of Eden. Later, Israel will be given the law. The law will be given to Israel graciously. Sacrifices and priests would be given so that they could draw near to God in the wilderness and know what it's like to have a relationship with God where God would say, Israel, among all of the nations, draw close to me, but not too close. Only a high priest can come in just once a year or you'll be consumed. So come close, but not too close. We can't get back to the Garden of Eden. But... We can get back to that which is even better, the new heavens and the new earth through Jesus Christ. Can we ever, here's an interesting question, can we ever be naked, physically naked and unashamed again? Maybe when we're little kids, somebody's taking care of us or going to the doctor, there may be other necessary reasons for that, but can we ever be naked and unashamed? I think the biblical answer is no. One person said, probably a busy mom, it ain't heaven if we have to do laundry. Well, I think we can rest assured we won't be doing any laundry in heaven. But I think you can also be rest assured you're going to be wearing clothes. You ain't going to be running around naked in heaven. We must be clothed, not only physically now, but spiritually now. Well, the reason I say we're never going to be back in Eden where we're naked and unashamed and we're going to be wearing clothes is this. After the fall, they had, they had knowledge of good and evil. We are always eternally going to have knowledge of good and evil. Because when we stand in front of the Lord one day, those of us who are believers, throughout all eternity, we're going to look at the scars in the hands of Jesus, and we're going to be reminded of evil, folks. And we're going to be reminded that we're the ones that caused those scars in His hands, and that sword, that sword mark in His side, those nail scar, those, those crown marks in His head. That's because of us. That's because of our evil. And there should be guilt and shame because of that. But we won't have guilt and shame because... We'll have been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus by faith. So through all eternity, we'll never have the sense of being naked and unashamed again in that way. But we won't be running around naked. We'll be clothed in white robes reminding us that we don't have to be ashamed before God even though our sin, we have caused pain to Jesus and He bore our shame and sin because... Our sin and shame has been covered by the work of Christ. So it can't be said that one day we'll be naked and unashamed, but it can be said that one day we will be full, we will be in eternity without any shame. Amen, church? Isn't that good? One day we'll be in eternity without any shame. I mean, we're in the in-between right now. Right now, if we embrace the gospel like we should, we would realize God looks upon us as if we had never sinned. Like he sees Christ. That's, that's the relationship Christ has with his church. And it's to be reflected in our marriage. We're to, we're to work that way in our marriages so that people can look at us and see that we're accepting our spouses, even in our imperfections, that we love them and they're free to come to us. And people should sense that about our love for one another. But it's hard work. This is how Jesus loves his church. So we're told in Romans 10, verse 11, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Sally, I like the song this morning, the, the, the line from the song that said this, and as you speak, a hundred billion failures disappear. I love that. I wrote that down after we started, we stopped singing that because I was thinking about this message and shame. And as he speaks, 
as He promises in His covenant through Jesus Christ to all who repent, repent, believe, and trust in Jesus, as He speaks a hundred billion guilts and shames, no matter what, 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 what's caused them and led to them, they disappear. And we'll be fully embraced in heaven as we stand in His presence. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And I wonder, how could He love me? A sinner condemned and unclean. How marvelous. How wonderful. And my song shall ever be. How marvelous. How wonderful is my Savior's love for me. The way to be restored to a place of honor without any trace of shame is solely through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Turn to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Embrace what He's done on your behalf and live it out. Live it out in our relationships with one another and strive for it. Work hard at it in our marriages. Bow your heads with me in prayer. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, God, for the mercy that You've shown to us in Jesus and how You take the weight that we have because of our sin, whether we consciously admit it or not, Lord, it's there. And Lord, you take it upon yourself. You enter into this sin and shame-filled world yourself and you take on the shame and you take on the guilt. Oh, what a God you are! So that you can take all of ours away and you can clothe us in your clothing and your righteousness. What a beautiful and glorious and gracious and unspeakable exchange is available to all who would believe. Reveal this to our hearts afresh. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, as we stand to sing together and praise the Lord, if you'd like to come and pray about something or let me talk with you about how God's at work in your heart, maybe you're not a believer and you'd like to talk for a few moments about that or about baptism, even church membership, this is a time you can do that and we can also hunt us down after church as well. But let's stand and sing right now together before we observe the Lord's Supper and you respond as the Lord leads as we praise God. stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me a sinner condemned unclean singing how marvelous how wonderful and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. He took my sin and my song. 
and suffered and died alone singing how marvelous how wonderful and my song shall ever be how marvelous how wonderful is my Savior's love for me and with the ransomed in glory his face I at last shall see twill be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me singing how marvelous how wonderful and my song shall Angela, come on up. Watson, Brady. This is Brady, right? Come on up here, Brady. Brady. All right, Brady's right here. <laughs> and this is her friend Lori. And Angela has been visiting here, I don't know how many months. It's been several months that she's been coming, seven or eight months. And, uh, and several months ago, she came by my office. She'd been here a while. She'd been coming with some friends that invited her. It's just great to see our church has been on mission, inviting people and so forth. And, and she'd had a, a daughter since then. And, and uh, God's used that to let her know she, know she needs to begin to seek the Lord and, and help raise her kids to fear the Lord. And, and uh, she came to see me several months ago. And t- we talked some about the gospel and where she was at. And, and uh, so some months went by. Some ladies in church have embraced her like Lori and some others in her small group. In her Sunday school, she's been coming to Sunday school and been in the Word. And so she wanted to talk. She came to our membership class a couple months ago. And I thought, well, maybe now she's ready. But here she came up a couple uh, last week and said, you know, Pastor, I'm ready to talk about membership. And, and so we talked this week. And, and, uh, and, and uh, Angela uh, had written down in her testimony, I've come to understand that, you know, it, I, I'd understood before that, that it was my good works that really got me to heaven. And she, I, I've come to understand it's, it's really faith alone that makes me right with God. And, uh, and, and so she said, you know, I need to be, be baptized as a believer. And so we're going to baptize Angela next Sunday. And uh, she's excited to do that. I'm excited for her as well. And uh, we're looking forward to that too. Amen, church. You excited about that? Amen. Okay. So Angela will, uh, is also going to be uh, joining our church too. And so we're excited to, to be formally doing that later on in another time. So I'm going to let you go back to your seat. And uh, we're glad to have you, Angela. And, uh, and we'll have our deacons come right now who are going to help us with the Lord's Supper. The rest of you can be seated. What is the gospel? It all begins with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, to rule over the garden. 
God told them they could eat from any tree that they wanted to in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything was perfect in the garden. They had a perfect relationship with the land, a perfect relationship with each other, a perfect relationship with God until they chose to rebel against God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it brought about separation between them and God. Man has always tried to bridge the separation on his own terms and in his own strength. Whether it's building a ladder of morality and trying to be good enough for God, or even in the Old Testament example, when men built a tower into the heavens trying to reach God on their own. A more contemporary example comes from 1961, when the Russians were first successful in sending a man into outer space. Upon returning, the Russian cosmonaut remarked, We have been to space, and we didn't find God or heaven there. A popular professor and author, C.S. Lewis, responded to the Russian cosmonaut. He said that looking for God in outer space is kind of like Hamlet, one of the characters in Shakespeare's plays, looking for Shakespeare in the attic of his home. Lewis said that for Hamlet to have a relationship with Shakespeare, Shakespeare would literally have to write himself into the story. That is the gospel. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Almost 2,000 years ago, the Bible says that Jesus, in fulfillment to Old Testament prophecies, was born of a virgin. Even as a child, he lived a perfect life. At the age of 30, he began his public ministry. He attracted followers. For three years, he taught, he healed, and he made bold claims, such as saying that he alone was the only way to God. The religious and political leaders did not like these teachings. They invoked a riot against Jesus. They brought about false accusations leading to a trial and to a sentencing of death by public crucifixion. The Bible says that while Jesus hung on the cross, that God placed all of the sin of all of mankind on Jesus. Jesus hung on the cross as our substitute. God made him him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. They took Jesus down from the cross and they put him in a tomb. They rolled a large stone at the entrance of the tomb so no one could get in or out. There were Roman soldiers who were posted on guard to keep people from coming to take Jesus's body. But on the third day, according to scripture, he rose again. After being seen by many eyewitnesses and giving instruction to his followers, he ascended back into the heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of God and serves as our advocate before the Father. So what does this have to do with you? The Bible says that we have all sinned and that we all fall short of God's standard of holiness. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no way to get rid of the burden of sin on our own. God calls all men everywhere to believe in Christ, repent of sins, and trust Christ to live a new life. As we look back and believe in what God has done through the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, as we repent and turn from our sins, as we trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we have peace with God and the forgiveness of sins. So let's review. It all begins with God. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Jesus died in our place for our sins and rose again on the third day. As we believe in Christ, repent from our sins, and trust Jesus for new life, we have peace with God and forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel.